Well, as we get started today, I want to ask you a question or two here. Have you ever been on the receiving end of words that left you hurting? Probably almost all of us would say yes, I'm sure, to that. How about this? Have you ever been on the speaking end of words that someone else took personally and it left them hurting? Probably if we were honest, we would all again say yes. You see, it's interesting. Sometimes it's just a truth about us as humans. Sometimes we underestimate the weight of our words. But we rarely underestimate the weight of someone else's words, right? That's just how that works. I want to talk about that a little bit before we're done today. But before we do, let me remind you that we are kind of in a series where we're working our way through what we call the Bible, which means the books. It's really two collections of books, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Christian Scriptures. The Hebrew Scriptures, ancient times, we were going through the narrative arc of them. And we're in a period 3,500 years ago right now. And that period of time is, is the time the Israelites were out of slavery. They, they were 400 years in slavery. They were delivered out of slavery. They were in the wilderness heading towards the land that God promised their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the promised land. And as they journeyed between those two destinations, slavery to the promised land, they were in the wilderness, and we're studying that period of time 3,500 years ago. We're calling this little mini-series, or limited series, if you please. We're calling it the, wonder, the wander years. Whoops, the wander years. What? Um, I wonder where we got that from. Okay. Um, now, speaking of the wander years, I want to remind you that um, there's a reason why they're called this. And, and next Sunday, you might not want to miss next Sunday, by the way, because next Sunday we're going to touch on the, the key event that is the reason these are called the wander years in our series today, okay? The key event of this whole period is next week's story. It's informative, it's instructive, and I hope that you'll be a part of that with us. But for today, we're continuing the journey. The Israelites were slaves for hundreds of years. Everyone who's out of slavery now was born in slavery. God had done miracles to bring them out of there, miracle upon miracle. They'd seen him move the mountains, but they seemed to forget to believe that they would see him do it again. And they began to complain. And last week, if you were with us, we saw them complaining for the next need as if God had already provided for them miraculously. Instead of trusting that he still would, they would complain with a critical spirit and harsh words. And um, if you thought that was a one-time conversation in the series, I got news for you. The entire season of the wander years, they complained. So we can almost not go anywhere in the story without finding more complaining. And they failed to trust God. And we kind of ended last week with them committing some pretty, uh, pretty interesting um, uh, blatant idolatry at the base of Mount Sinai. And I think that was a, a byproduct of the complaining because it was a lack of trust in God that led them to then go the extra mile into the things that we talked about last Sunday. But I want to continue the story from there and make some observations that pertain to what I, I talked about at the beginning here. We're going to see two stories today. Each story for about half our time. We'll apply it at the end to our lives a little bit. Story number one takes place in these wander years, beginning in Numbers chapter 11. 
in verse 4. It says, Then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. It's an interesting choice of words there, especially if you think about Moses as the leader writing them. Moses not have thought very highly of that group to, to explain them, by the way, as the foreign rabble. I don't know what that means. But these are people who are not part of the Hebrew people. Perhaps they were also people who were slaves in Egypt, and they came out of slavery with the others. Or perhaps there are people who joined along the way because they saw God working and they wanted to be close to, to God that powerful. But whatever reason, this group began to travel about the quote-unquote good things of Egypt, which is funny, we'll discuss that. But it says that, and the people of Israel also began to complain. And isn't that how it works, by the way? Isn't that how everything works? That usually it starts with somebody or a small group of people, and then it spreads. If you've ever been a part of this in, in any place, some of you could tell stories of this, right? You got, you're a part of a good job, it's a good company, there's a good culture there, and then somewhere along the line, someone came in and began to complain and gripe about everything, and that kind of brought the, brought the temperature down, or raised the temperature up in the room, brought the culture down, and then it spread, and others started to complain. Before long, a, a new culture was developed where everyone complained and griped all the time, and, and the place became an unhealthy place to be because it moved in, and then it got contagious. Perhaps you've been a part of a, an organization. Perhaps you've been a part of a church experience like that in your past where you were a part of a church. So we've all, maybe some of us have experienced that where there are people who just complained and griped and criticized all the time, and it became a toxic part of the, that church's DNA or culture. How sad is that for a church, by the way? Maybe you've been a part of that in your neighborhood or in your organization or your family or your favorite circle of activity. You belong to something that's important to you. And it was wonderful for a while, but then some people started being griping, and then eventually it became a toxic environment, right? That's a tough place to be, but it often spreads. And so now everyone's complaining. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. And this is silly in verse 5. They said, we remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. Okay, if by free you mean in exchange for your slave labor, sure, you ate for free. I guess that's one way to put that, sure. Oh yeah, we had fish for free. And we had all the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic that we wanted. Now, now again, they're remembering the good old days. This is a human tendency to remember the good old days, Right? Like, I remember that time when things were better. Now, back in those good old days, we were griping then too because in their case, it was slavery they were griping about. We want to be free. That's legitimate. Now it's something else. See, the problem is, is that when we shift from one thing that we're unhappy for, that circumstance changes, but the new thing has imperfect details. Where Sometimes we romanticize the past or look to the future, but the present's never perfect. And now they're saying, oh, for the good old days in Egypt. They weren't that good. But that's nice view when you're griping about today. That's so human. We can all relate to the tendency to do that, most likely. Verse 6, they said, but now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is this manna. If you were with us last week, the manna was the miracle food that God was providing for them every single day, like dropping it in their laps, dropping in their yards as they journeyed through the wilderness. They didn't have supermarkets out there. God did a miracle. So that was pretty awesome. And instead of saying that's awesome, they were complaining because they were tired of it. Now, I said this last week. These are legitimate frustrations, okay? So before we minimize what they're saying here, how, how many of us want to eat the same thing every single day, okay? I don't care what your favorite food is. At some point, you get tired of it, right? What's your favorite food? I mean, mine used to be pizza when I was young. Then I got older, I had acid reflux, and all of a sudden, pizza and me were okay sometimes, 
You know, tacos should be on the no, no list, but they're probably way up there. I think my favorite thing, Michelle makes an awesome chicken chili. And I always say I could eat it every day. But the truth is, is if that's all I ate all day every day, it's possible, hard to believe, but possible, I might be able to grow sick of it. Because if you always eat the same thing, it can get old. And so they're getting manna. Now, again, it's a miracle. There's no place else to eat. God's literally providing for them on a journey to the promised land so they can grow their own crops. But they're not looking at the, the miracle of that. They're looking at the, the weariness of the food and saying, we're better off in Egypt as slaves. And this is their tone, if you saw last week, just gripe, criticize, and accuse God, accuse Moses and everybody else. Now, here's what's going to happen. We're not going to read this, but I'll tell you what happens. God's going to provide them a special meal of the meats, okay? But he's also going to start dealing with their complaining with consequences. And that's an interesting story, but it's not the point today I'm trying to make, so go home and read it for yourself if you want to read the entire chapter. It's in Numbers chapter 11. What I want you to notice begins in verse 10. In verse 10, it says that Moses heard all the families standing in the doorways of their tents whining, and the Lord became extremely angry because we're made in God's image, and none of us like it when we're trying to do something good for people or trying to serve, and all of a sudden it's just never good enough, and you're getting, you know, you're being complained about. And so God's angry. It says Moses was also very aggravated. And right here, we're going to begin to see Moses begin to crack under the pressure. This is important because what we're about to see happen next is going to inform the end of our story in two weeks in a very interesting way. Moses is going to begin to buckle under the pressure of all the griping because it's heavy. Remember I said it, it can make a whole culture toxic. And Moses is the leader, but he's getting weary. Look what Moses says here in verse 11. He says to the Lord, why are you treating me, your servant, so harshly? Now he's going to complain. He says, have mercy on me. What did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? I mean, seriously, what did I ever do wrong? He, was, he left Egypt as a young man when he tried to, to bring them deliverance, thinking he could be a, a local hero raised in privilege, and, they, and it didn't go well. They didn't respond to it well. Should have been his first warning sign that they were going to be difficult. He runs off in exile. God talks him into going back 40 years later against his will. But he takes up the mantle and goes, and now he's got the whole posse out there in the middle of the wilderness, and he's saying, this stinks. I didn't want this job. These people are difficult. What did I do to deserve this punishment of leading these griping, complaining people who want to stone me all the time and criticize? He says in verse 12, did I give birth to them? Did I bring them into the world? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? How can I carry them to the land you swore to give to their ancestors? He's like, look, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? They keep whining to me saying, give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. And then he says this. This is, this is the ultimate. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. Do me a favor and spare me this misery. Moses is not suicidal, but Moses is at a spot where he's like, God, I'm not going to do anything to myself, but if you want to do something and take me out, I'm okay with that. You ever been there before? I'm okay with that. I mean, hey, I mean, give me leprosy now, God. I don't know what he's saying, but he's like, he's just done. He's ready to be finished. And so God steps in, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
gather before me 70 men who are recognized as elders and leaders of Israel, people who are already showing leadership in the nation, and they're, they're elders, they're appointed. Bring them to the tabernacle to stand there with you. The tabernacle was the place where they would offer their, their, their sacrifices. They would do their re- religious traditions to kind of uh, approach God and understand their relationship with him. We, we, some people get really hung up in church world about the tabernacle and the furniture of the tabernacle. Maybe that's your scene. You like to nerd out about, about that. The point is, is this is a spot where they kind of met to, to connect with God. And so and God would come down sometimes and a, a this cloud that was with them through the wilderness, he would rest upon the tabernacle when Moses would go in there. Moses would come out and talk to the people. Joshua, the young leader, would stay there to stick in the presence of God. And so God says to Moses, bring these 70 people to the tabernacle with you, and I want to talk to you all. And here's what God says. I will come down and talk to you there. I will take some of the spirit that is upon you, and I will put the spirit upon them also. They will bear the burden of the people along with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. Just interesting observations for those of you understanding the Christian scriptures much later, that when Jesus came and died, he promised that when he died and returned, he would, uh, to the glory, he would send as he prepares a place for us, he would send his Holy Spirit to be indwell us as a guide, a teacher, a counselor, a comforter. And so we, we understand that believers are filled with the Holy Spirit as Christians today. We, uh, but in the ancient times like this, before Christ came, God's Spirit would rest upon people for special purposes. And Moses was one of those people. God's Spirit rested upon him for the job he had. And so God said, I'm going to take 70 other people and share that Holy Spirit on them to help you so that you're not carrying this burden alone. They will bear the burden of the people along with you so that you don't have to carry it alone. In other words, Moses, you need the help. I'm about to give it to you. So Moses went out and reported the Lord's words to the people. He gathered the 70 elders and stationed them around the tabernacle And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses. Then he gave the 70 elders the same spirit that was upon Moses. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied like a sign to show that God's spirit was resting on them. But this never happened again. And by the way, that's an interesting statement for those of you who are kind of into the Bible knowledge scene and you look at the Christian scriptures and you know the whole idea of of the spirit coming to indwell believers and some of those early signs that God gave just an interesting observation that even in this ancient time when he was doing something new, putting his spirit on all these other people, he confirmed it with a sign of prophesying. But then once he did that and confirmed that new thing, it never happened again, which is just an interesting thought process for how God may be working in certain spots to show he's into something that's new and happening. Anyhow, so these people are all speaking and, and they're all part of the team sharing the spirit of God with Moses to lead the nation. Verse number 26 says, Then two men, Eldad and Medad, remember to, to remind me to never complain about my name again, by the way. Eldad and Medad had stayed behind in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they had not gone out to the tabernacle. So interestingly, they never left. They were supposed to go out to the tabernacle for this event. They didn't go. Maybe because they were like, no one tells us what to do. Or maybe because they were busy doing something else. I don't know. But they didn't come. So they're in the middle of all the people. But it says that the Spirit still rested upon them as well. So they prophesied there in the camp. And a young man, a young man ran and reported to Moses, hey, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, who had been Moses' assistant since his youth, 
protested, Moses, my master, make them stop. That's your job. What are they doing that out there for? Make them stop. But I want you to notice Moses' reaction here. Moses replies, are you jealous for my sake? <laughs> I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them all. Now, why does Moses say this? Maybe one of two big reasons. Reason number one could be a healthy reason. He's like, I want everyone to experience God's spirit speaking to them. This is wonderful. That's great. Or maybe a less healthy reason is he's like, are you kidding me? That's been my burden to carry all this time, and I'm tired of it. I wish God to put the spirit on all the people. They wouldn't need me. I could just kind of step back, and they could be okay without me. I don't know what he's saying here. Either way, Moses is like, don't get jealous for me. Everyone could have this. I don't want to be anything special. That was his attitude. He was not some kind of a crazed, power-driven leader. He was in the job he was in reluctantly because it was needed, and he was very capable, but he did not have an ego trip at all. It says, then Moses returned to the camp with the elders of Israel. That's the first story. And before I go to the second story, I want you to see how that the complaining started with some. It spread to everybody else. And just like last week, it began to weigh down to where Moses himself is ready to be done because he's so discouraged. And I want to remind you of something I said before we pivot here. I said this earlier, we tend to underestimate the weight of our words. But we don't tend to underestimate the weight of other people's words. Like if someone else is critical about us or to us or behind our backs about us and we find out about it, you know what we do? We're like, how could you say that? And they're like, well, I didn't mean anything by it. Well, you must have meant something by it. Well, that's not what it was. Well, it came from somewhere, so it just shows what you really think about me. And we, we, we just latch into those words, you know. That's what you think. And so then we're like, you know, we're like, well, I was having a bad day. Well, that's no excuse because we don't underestimate the weight of other people's words. But when we say something that we shouldn't say, we're thinking, no one should take it personally, because I'm a good person. I don't mean anything by it. And if someone got offended by my words, they'd be like, what? Don't be hurt. I wasn't trying to hurt anybody. I'm just, I just say what I think. I, I'm a good person. In fact, I'm offended that you're offended by what I said. Because, you know, I mean, you shouldn't be. So as you see what we do, we give ourselves this grace sometimes and underestimate Words that we don't underestimate from others. I mean, we, we say the old, what was the saying growing up? Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. A bunch of lies right there. We know how words can hurt us. We just sometimes forget how much our words land the same blow. And we give ourselves the reasons. I had a bad day. I was stressed. Something set me off. It's, I didn't really mean it. You didn't take me the right way. But we don't give that grace to others because we know it, it weighs a lot. We're going to come, we're, that's what we're talking about today. But let me get to the next story. Because we see the toll. This is starting to take a toll on Moses. And it's about to get steeper. In chapter 12, let's see the second story. While they were at Hazaroth, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because he had married a Cushite woman. Now, this is an interesting story, and if you have been paying attention or you've read the books before, you might know that Moses was once married to a Midianite woman named Zipporah. And she's nowhere to be found in this story. I've read the Bible so many times, but I still try to look it all up again and see if I'm missing some detail. We don't know what happens to, to Zipporah in the story. What we, here's what we know about his wife, Zipporah. When, when Moses was a young man and he ran out of Egypt into exile, he met her family, became a shepherd working for her dad, and married the girl. They had a couple sons together. When God called him back from the burning bush to go into Egypt to set the slaves free, she initially went with him with her sons, but then because they were going back to his people, so to speak, he 
wanted to institute the very important custom of circumcision, which is a very big parenting contention between what she was doing in their traditions versus what he wanted to do. And it caused a big old scene, and she, and they, they had some words, okay? And then he gets the slaves out of Egypt, and at some point they're all out free in the wilderness here during the wander years. And her dad comes, Moses' father-in-law comes to check in on what's going on, and he sees the operation, he's impressed, he gives Moses some advice. And then he leaves, and from that point on, you never hear from Moses' wife again. So I don't know if she went back with dad because this was not what she signed up for when she knew the guy watching sheep in the wilderness. She just went back home with dad. Or if she dies along the way, or what happens to her, but she's just gone. And Moses, either way, is married to somebody else. He marries a Cushite woman. And Miriam and Aaron, by the way, they're his siblings. And they don't like her. And boy, some of you know what it's like in your family, when someone doesn't like someone that someone else in the family married. Maybe you've been in the receiving end of marrying somebody and no one else approved of that relationship in your family and it put some tension and, and some hurt or some weight on you. Or maybe you didn't like someone who married someone in your family because it made the relationship strange and it's caused some drama to this day. So Miriam and Aaron don't like Moses' wife now. Now why does this matter? Because they're his siblings. Miriam is Moses' older sister. I want to remind you, she's the older sister when he was a baby and they were saying to, they were slaves in Egypt and they were supposed to kill all the baby boys. Mom put him in a basket in the Nile River. Miriam was the one that stood there to watch over him and mom left crying. And she's the one who saw Pharaoh's daughter making the connection with the baby in the basket. She connected Pharaoh's daughter to her mom so mom could nurse the boy and he could know his family though he'd be raised in the palace of Egypt. She was kind of a big deal. She's his big sister. And who's Aaron? Aaron's his big brother, born before the kill the baby years. And Aaron was the one that, that God, he wanted to have help. Moses wanted help in leading, so Aaron was his partner. And, Mo, and Aaron became the high priest of the tabernacle where they did their rituals to worship God. And his adult sons would help him. His grandsons were still too young, so they, were, they had a full load between him and his sons to run the tabernacle. And then at one point, two of Aaron's sons get killed in the service of the tabernacle because they did something wrong. And it's a whole story in itself. And Aaron's probably hurt, sad, maybe frustrated or angry about that. And he's short-staffed. And now he's upset with Moses' marriage choice. His sister Miriam is critical. And they criticize Moses. And this matters. It says in verse number um, 2, they said, Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us too? Isn't that a weird thing to say? Like, was Moses walking around saying, the Lord only speaks through me? No. The last thing we just read, Moses is like, I wish y'all had God's spirit, man. He was not an egotistical. If you ever worked for a boss or an employer where the, the guy was a dictator in charge and anyone with leadership capacity abandoned the company because you couldn't work for a person who was that insecure and controlling and dictatorial. But you also know the places where someone comes in and they try to be gracious and a servant leader and then some strong people come in and want to take advantage of that because they think it's soft and exert themselves. Here's Moses. He's just being a servant leader, gracious, humble. And now he's being accused of something that was the opposite of what we just read in the last chapter. Like as if he has some kind of a power trip. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Moses is like, I just asked for help. I want everyone to have this. What are you talking about? Hasn't he spoken through us too? And they're criticizing him, and not just to each other, but the implication here is they're beginning to criticize him to the people. This is not just anybody. These are his siblings. And it says the Lord heard them. And God's going to step into the story in a way he hasn't yet. In fact, you might wonder, God let some, some griping and some complaining go earlier, and then he started stepping up some consequences as it kept going on. But he's going to really step into this one in a heavy way. 
Why? Well, you might understand why already, but we'll talk about it in just a moment here. Let's keep reading. Verse 3 says that Moses was very humble, more humble than any other person on earth. Don't get mad at me for, if you know, I think it's funny because Moses was supposed to be the leadership of the writing of this book. So then he's like, you know, overseeing this writing. So, you know, write this down. Moses, very humble man, most humble man in all the world, trust me. I mean, he's like, I'm, I'm amazing, I'm, I'm great, I'm kind, I'm awesome, and I'm humble. You know, I don't know. But anyhow, it's funny. But he was, he really was a humble leader. So moving on, um, verse, weird. But verse four, it says, so immediately the Lord called to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, and he said to them, go out to the tabernacle, all three of you. So the three of them went out to the tabernacle. Then the Lord descended in the pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tabernacle. So God's like in this, this cloud comes down that Moses deals with, and God's going to talk to the three of them, the three siblings. Aaron and Miriam he called, and they stepped forward. And the Lord said to them, now listen to what I say. If there were prophets among you, I, the Lord, would reveal myself in visions. I would speak to them in dreams, but not with my servant Moses. Of all my house, he's the one I trust. I speak to him face to face and clearly and not in riddles. In other words, he sees the Lord as he is. So, so God is saying, Moses is special to me. He's, a, he's in the position he's in because I have put him here, though he didn't want to be. So he's saying to Aaron, and Aaron, so why were you not afraid to criticize my servant Moses? And again, why is God raining down so hard on these two when, for crying out loud, everyone else is complaining too and criticizing too? Why is he being so particular here? Again, we're going to discuss that. But look what happens in verse 9. The Lord was very angry with them, and he departed. And as the cloud moved from above the tabernacle, there stood Miriam, her skin as white as snow from leprosy. Now, let me quickly talk about leprosy, because we haven't talked about it much yet in this journey, and I don't think we will. But leprosy was kind of the hot disease of the day. Like the thing no one could find a cure for. If you got leprosy, it was over rover. I mean, you might get what looked like leprosy. And they had, they had laws. In fact, you should know this. Much of the laws that God gave the nation of Israel that we all like selectively hang on to today to beat other people up with because the Bible or whatever. These are just laws given to a nation to govern the new nation. When we look at these laws he gave them, a whole chunk of those laws were cleanliness laws and dietary laws and health laws as they traveled. You know, there were, there, were, there were quarantine laws in many cases. If you, had, if you had an outbreak that could be leprosy, you had to leave and be quarantined off until, until you could be trusted to be back in public again because they were afraid that could be contagious. And they, they send you off until they knew you were better. And once you, if you were better, you could come back into society. But if you really had leprosy, it would spread, and then you would never come back. You'd live on the outskirts of the civilization with other lepers. And it was a terrible thing because not only did you have a disease that would eventually kill you, but the process of getting worse was terrible, terrible way to die. And the minute you had it, you didn't get a chance to go hug anyone goodbye because it was contagious. You were ran out of town from your family, your house, and everything you knew. It was just like you were cut off from your, your circles. Imagine how terrible that would be. That's about as bad as anything else that happens. Leprosy was a big deal. And all of a sudden, this moment that they're, God addresses Miriam and Aaron for attacking Moses, Miriam is hit with leprosy. And, and you might be thinking, or maybe you're not, but I'm thinking, why Miriam and not Miriam and Aaron? Like, why didn't Aaron get this leprosy too? 
Now, I, I, I believe it or not, I've, I've been exposed in my life to some really idiotic religious groups that um, have some really goofy patriarchal ideas, and they're like, well, it was, she got struck because she was a woman and it's worse for women, da, 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 whatever. Whatever that nonsense is. I don't know why she got struck in that, Aaron, but I want to offer you two insights that might explain it a little bit. First insight is this. Aaron had a very big uh, job. His co-leader with Moses bringing him out of Egypt. He was the high priest. Again, everyone had daily rituals in the temple. It was a very necessary job, and you couldn't be away from it. And, and again, they were already short-staffed because Aaron's grandkids weren't able to help yet. Aaron and his sons, he had two sons already died. They're short-staffed. Basically, Aaron was an essential worker. Can I use that term? Aaron was basically an essential worker in the tabernacle. So, so God says, he doesn't touch Aaron here, but in touching Miriam with this moment, this, this seeming judgment here is hitting Aaron too because Aaron loved his sister and so did Moses. In fact, we see the story here. It says, when Aaron saw what happened to her, he cried out to Moses, oh, my master, please don't punish us for this sin which we have so foolishly committed as if Moses did it, right? And Moses was not like, I give you leprosy. It wasn't what Mo but he's like, Moses, please. It was very personal to Aaron. He was terrified. And Miriam is saying nothing. She's probably, because she wasn't just like, Miriam didn't just like have an outbreak of a spot that could be leprous. She was full on white with leprosy. Like that's, that's like advanced stages, like instantly. She was possibly in shock. I don't know. And, and Aaron's like, please, he's terrified. He's hurt. Don't punish us for the sin that we have committed so foolishly. Don't let her be like a stillborn baby already decayed at birth. And, and Moses doesn't want this. Moses is not like that sibling that you were when you were little to your siblings when they got in trouble. And you're like, neener, neener, you deserve that. Moses is like, no way. He's, he says in verse 13, Moses cried out to the Lord. God, oh God, please, I beg you, please heal her. No one wants this. And God does heal her. God does step in and heal her. And, and, but he does still have her go outside according to their laws that he had established for their new nation to do the cleanliness thing, the quarantine thing, where she was sent outside the camp for the next seven days. And they couldn't move on for seven days because she had to go outside the camp because that's the process of when she'd been exposed to leprosy. So she's outside the camp basically in exile, you know, missing out on what's going on inside. It's very visible, honestly, a very humbling spot to be outside the camp like Something like you were, something's wrong with you for the next week until you're allowed back in was a very humbling experience and terrified them all. And you're like, why did God crack down so hard on, on, on this family for criticizing Moses when if the last five chapters I've read the last two weeks, that's all everyone did was complain and criticize and gripe. Why was God so extra here? Now I want to talk about that as we wrap this up in a little bit here. Don't your hopes up too fast, but um, I want us to, to take this thought home with us today. I said earlier that our words are often weightier than we give them credit for being. But I want you to understand, and this story illustrates something so powerful, that there are a couple of factors that can make our words even weightier, that can add further weight to our words than they already are, which we already underestimate. What are some factors that can add further weight to our words? The first one is proximity. Proximity affects the weight of your words. The closer you are to something, the more weighty it is. So proximity. So for example, your spouse. You know, if some person in, in the world out there is critical of you, some other woman criticizes you, sir, 
It is probably going to hurt as much as if it's your wife. Women, if, if another man out there in the culture criticizes you, it's not fun, but not as painful as if it's your husband. If it's, it's your home, if, if, if you're, if you're um, you know, children, if some other kids out there criticized you and said some things about you, you would not enjoy it. But when your kids, whether they're little or grown, are critical of you, now that carries some punch. If other adults are critical of you, people older than you, whether you're young or you're older, but people older than you, a generation, are critical of you, and you're, and you're you know, just in kids these days are crotchety, you don't like that, but it's a whole different beast when it's your mom or dad. They have heavy things to say. When you're in a company, it's hard, but when you're in a, in a team within that company, those words weigh more in your team. In your close friend circles. You see, proximity affects the weight of our words. Our words are always weightier than we want to give them credit for, but the closer we are to somebody, the more weighty those words become. We know this is true. We all know it's true. We've all done it. We've all experienced it, haven't we? And in this case, Miriam and Aaron are not just two randos in the camp of Israel. These are two people who were not just one of the many complainers out there. They were his big sister and his big brother. And God's like, Moses is cracking, and this is close to home. I'm going to step in here. Because proximity affects the weight of our words. But not just proximity. Something else does, too. Guess what? Position. Position affects the weight of our words. When, when people are critical, it's hard. But when leaders are critical... Right? When leaders are critical. We live, in a, we live in a political culture where everyone and their brother gets on, on um, social media and gripes about other people they don't agree with socially or morally or politically, one way or the other. It's just it's a sad to see Christians so critical of other people. We're critical of other leaders on the other team, whatever team you're on in that department. But you know what's really weighty is when someone who's a leader, presidential candidate, governor, senator, people in leadership, who use their words to demean people and are bullies with their words and are, 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 are abusive with their language towards people, that's weightier. You know why? Because it says everybody else is acceptable to be this way. And we've seen that, and it's not okay. No matter how much you want it to be okay, it's not okay. But it happens. But the weight is heavier when you're in leadership, when you're an influencer, in your, in, in your circles, at your job, maybe you're a foreman or you're a boss or you're a, in your, a small group leader in your faith community or a, a deacon or, um, or just someone that everyone respects in your neighborhood or your favorite club that you belong to. When you're, in, when you're in a position, your words weigh more. And you know, what, you know what's interesting? Parents get both ends of this thing. Because parents, we are proximity and position in our children's lives, aren't we? The weight of our parents. Look, some of you, let's just be honest now. There are some of us today, I'm sure, because this is how it is. Some of us today, you might be in your 60s or 70s or older, and you still carry the sting of things that a parent said about you when you were young. It still gnaws at you from time to time. And it's been decades. They're gone. And you still carry that weight, don't you? Now, I'll say about that to you. Get some counsel, get some therapy. Find someone to talk to and just work that out. It won't make it go away, but it can make it manageable if it's affecting your well-being. But I'm not talking about what was said to you. I'm asking you, are we doing the same thing? It's so sad when, when parents cross both of those lines and are like, look at you, you little, little punk. You never amount to anything. What's wrong with you? You're just like, Whatever. 
and, and it's because we're angry or frustrated or scared, or maybe we want the best, but we're overreacting. And boy, you put words, and words have weight, and they weigh, they weigh more when it's someone close to you, proximity, and when someone who's over you in authority. And, and we, don't, we, we always underestimate the weight of our words. We can't afford to with proximity and position. We've got to watch out at the impact of what we say to those little ones or those big ones that we care about. And it works all directions, doesn't it? And we tend to get this backwards a little bit. It's kind of weird. Like we almost think, well, because I'm in a position, I have a right to say what I think. Or because I'm in proximity, I can let my hair down with you. That's why we go to the grocery store and someone runs into us with a grocery cart and we're like, oh. And we bite our tongue. We don't say what we're thinking, though we're annoyed. But we go home and when our family annoys us, we let the words come out. Well, I'm just, I'm more relaxed at home, so I just say my peace. But, but isn't it crazy that that's the place that our words matter more? We, we hurt those we love most somehow because we let familiarity breed contempt. And yet proximity is where we need to be more careful. And position is those things we, when we have it, we need to be more careful with what we say. But we tend to get it backwards. And I'm saying we must be intentional and not careless here. Now, here's the good news to all of this. Here's the good news, okay? This is a positive and negative principle, and that is this, that positive and negative words both carry weight. So if we underestimate the, word, the weight of our negative words, we also underestimate the power of our positive words. And I want to encourage you, you can make a difference with your words. If you go, I mentioned how someone could come into a job and be negative and it can spread to where everyone becomes critical. It makes it a toxic culture. You can do the opposite too. You can go into a place and be positive. You can sit there and defend the criticized or attacked. You can speak, speak blessings. You can point out the good stuff and you can write some thank you notes and you could, you could, you could be encouraging. And you can create a culture that can become contagious of positivity. And even if no one joins you, make a difference through positive words. Don't underestimate the power of your positive words. But especially when it comes to our two areas, proximity and position. If you're in a position of leadership or influence, a parent, whatever you may be, your words are so important. Don't minimize how powerful you can build. I've seen people all my life whose parents just spoke blessings over them saying, hey, I see that in you. You're good at that. I'm proud of you or that's something God's doing in your life. And they'll just grab a hold of that and it will shape them for the next 20 years. It can happen. Don't underestimate the power of your positive words in, from a position or from proximity. What you say to your spouse, it, it, it weighs a lot. So it weighs a lot for the good. So encourage. It weighs a lot to your, to your parents, kids, you understand your parents, you know. I know they're older, they're in that position, and you, it's easy to give grace to people for being human, but, but, but mom and dad are supposed to be like walking on water because they're authority, so you just don't give, you don't give the same lens of grace sometimes, that direction. But they're just big people who entered life with no previous, entered parenting with no previous experience in the department until they had kids and are trying to figure it out and they're scared, and they make mistakes, and they have self-doubt, and when you grow up and you're adults, they'll look back and they'll look at all the things they wish they did better, and the enemy tends to whisper the, the, the negative feelings of how they did louder than the positive ones. And you come along and say, hey, thank you for all you did for me. And your positive words to them can mean so much because it carries weight. Your proximity carries weight. Your position affects the weight of your words. If you understand the value of proximity and position and you use it positively, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You will make a difference. Because not enough people do this. So many times we're just we're careless about it. 
We don't know the damage we're doing, but if you can understand it and harness it for good, you don't understand how much of a difference you could make. So what am I saying today? I'm saying weigh your words carefully. Weigh them carefully. Now, let me acknowledge this before we wrap up. I understand that once we've gotten into the habit of weaponizing our words when we're angry or hurt, once we've gotten into the habit of using verbal explosion as a coping mechanism or as an outlet for our frustration, I know that it can be hard to fix it. Like you could hear a message like this or some reminder and say, okay, and just on a dime, you'd never do it again, right? That'd be great. But that's not how it always works. God's spirit can do that. That'd be a miracle. Good for you. Go, you know, go for it. But, but here's what ha- often happens. We, we get challenged to do, this is important. We want to do better. We take three steps forward and then we have two steps back. And along the way, we relapse because we've had a bad habit for a long time in our life with our words. And then we, we, when we relapse, we're tempted to say, I just can't do any better. That's just who I am. I just say what I think. That's just who I am. Don't let that happen. Don't identify at a core level with your struggles. Don't own that and say, that's just who I am. No, no, that's who you are. You're more than conquerors through him that loved you. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You're victors. What you need to do in those moments that you, you feel a relapse and you're trying to do better is say, whoops, I had a bad day, but this is not who I am. It's what I did, but it's not who I am. Who I am is somebody who's going to overcome this, whether it takes me a day, a week, a month, a year, or a decade. I will come on the other side of this thing with a story of victory and, 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 and harnessing the power of my words because by the grace of God, I can do all things. I know it's hard to change our ways once we've gotten the habit, but we can. And imagine, imagine how much better our world would be. Imagine how much better our nation would be. Imagine how much better our homes would be. Imagine how much better our families and our marriages would be if we weighed our words, if we did not, if we stopped underestimating the weight of our words, especially when it comes to proximity with people closest to us who, t- who tend to get the worst of it, especially when it comes to the positions where we have influence or power. But no matter where we are, if we would understand that words have weight, positive words and negative words, and we weighed them carefully and we used them, imagine a world, imagine a culture of families, homes, churches, and places, how much better things could be. And if anyone should lead the charge in that, it should be those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ.